Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of the Drop-In CEO brand, and I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of this amazing podcast. And I have the good fortune of being introduced and speaking to amazing leaders, and they share their insights, their career journey, and hopefully inspire you along the way. And if you love this episode, I know you will, I would ask that you subscribe, rate, review, continue to tell others so we can continue to bring great programming. And just know, I am the helper of the C-suite leader of today and tomorrow navigate their challenges with confidence. And so today I am grateful to have met this amazing guest, Hirsch Rupin. With dual chops in comedy and advertising, Hirsch has enjoyed an eclectic career spanning two decades as a writer, brand storyteller, and get this, as a stand-up comedian playing gigs across the country. Often he uses humor to humanize brands. Empathy and accessibility are the hallmarks of his work. And above all, as a brand storyteller, Hirsch operates on one simple principle, sell the truth. His clients include change makers, market leaders, agencies, and Oscar-winning filmmakers. He is also, and I am so pleased to say, host of the Yes Brand and Trust Tastes Funny podcast. He has toured the country performing in venues such as the Comedy Store, Stand Up New York, Comet Strip Life, Funny Bone, and the Ice House. And most importantly, he has guided clients and colleagues in a host of social action campaigns. And in 2021, he and Isaac Fadlin formally launched Kosher, a streetwear brand committed to goodwill, inclusion, and equity. Such an accomplished person. Hirsch, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. It's a pleasure to be here. Really, really an honor to be here. So we are going to have a lot of fun on this. I was introduced to Hirsch by the network. Shout out to Frank Agan, who found value in introducing us. I also had the good fortune of being interviewed on his podcast, Yes Brand. It was a lot of fun. I had the pleasure of bringing forward his insights to you. This is an important one because he's different. And I love different. You know, I always (laughs) go against the grain. But he has a significant background in helping companies and individuals find their brand's messaging and also leveraging humor. And we need to laugh a little bit more in business. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Her, share a bit about yourself personally and the work that you're doing now. Thanks, Deb. I have to begin with the word play. It's something I discovered recently, which was I was going through all the different aspects of what I do. And, you know, we're always trying to refine our own messages, no matter how much we help others with their messaging. Sometimes our own takes a little extra sweat. But the thing that I realized was a through line through everything that I've done, even things like the nonprofit that we created with the kosher brand, we created a complete nonprofit offshoot of the streetwear brand called the Keep It Kosher Project. But everything has a through line of play, of fun. And I think maybe even that's why my first podcast is called Truth Tastes Funny, because 
we get a chance to play with guests, even though we're talking about really serious issues quite often. Yes, brand has its roots in an improvisational comedy rule called yes and. And I just noticed that play is the one thing I can't seem to do without. So I appreciate your being game, for example, and coming on the Yes Brand podcast. We don't know exactly what will happen or what we'll find funny or serious. And so that, as a child, set the tone for my life, really. I, when I was a little kid, I was, you know, a little comedian, like a lot of kids are funny, but I had an ear for voices. I had an ear for dialects and mimicry. So if I saw a person on the street or I saw a person performing or relatives, whoever it might be, I was able to mimic their gestures, their body language, their voice, their attitude. And you might think, oh, well, someone like that would become an impressionist. And yet I couldn't figure it out, but I, I always knew I wasn't going to be an impressionist. I did do stand-up comedy and I started performing, but I also somehow got into advertising. I went to School of Visual Arts in New York. I studied filmmaking, screenwriting, and also by accident, because the chairman suggested it, advertising. And I ended up really becoming like the go-to publicist for people in commercial production and post-production. So people who made commercials, directors, creatives sometimes, composers, visual effects artists, editors. I was the kind of the progenitor of this niche, such a very specific niche. And I wondered, well, why if I'm like a ham and I like to act and I like to get up and make people laugh, why am I doing so much crowing about other people? Why am I kind of representing artists? And what I realized was that the great joy for me wasn't just being on stage, although I love it. The great joy for me was serving the people that I like and the people that I admire by capturing and conveying their voice, not in terms of mimicry, but in terms of tribute. So over the past, you know, several years, my clients would say to me, you know, like, oh, I need to do a press release or something. And I'm not really a publicist in the traditional sense, but I'm a press writer. So I do that. So I could just the same write a yogurt comedy campaign for television or the web as I could write the bio of the chairman of a food company or write a press release going out from the food company or do their internal campaigns within their own employee segments. And that all comes back to that same thing that you mentioned in the intro, sell the truth, because the truth is, first of all, it's the foundation of comedy. So there is no comedy without truth and irony and some perspective. There isn't. You can't be a really funny comedian saying things that are completely baseless. That doesn't work. But you can take the truth, twist it around, come up with some new take on it and deliver a more perhaps impactful and poignant version of what's really going on, a consolidated, considered version. So Clients would say, oh, Hershify this bio or Hershify my quote, Hershify, you know, just make me sound smart. Well, it's kind of funny, all these CEOs and leaders, you know, enigmatic figures saying, make me sound smart. <laughs> and I'm like, look, if you were limited in that area, that's how you would sound. You would just sound a little better. But it wouldn't make sense for me to make you sound like Einstein. It would be incongruous. 
the goal is for the people who read it to say, oh, yeah, that sounds like him or her. I, that sounds like what they would say. So it's funny. Be careful what you wish for. Hershify may actually wind up in Webster someday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> all of a sudden, when you say, you know, sell the truth. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking back to that movie with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, You Can't Handle the Truth. I'm curious what people think about when you say sell the truth. And then people is like, I can't do that. You know, the, the truth is scary. The truth might bring up a bad memory, but then it's at the core of who they are and why they do. Help me to understand when somebody says, I can't sell the truth, even though <laughs> the truth sells. Okay. Well, you know how when people give us advice or constructive criticism, we can take it a number of ways. And we can take it as a challenge and they're threatening. It's threatening to us. And we can say, well, we don't want to be corrected or we don't want to. But really, if someone points something out to us and we mm -hmm. recognize it as truth and it's uncomfortable and we didn't want to tell ourselves, which is why it hadn't occurred to us, our internal barometer will say, take that advice, be brave, take that advice. Mm -hmm. It's their ability to point out to us what we weren't interested in seeing. Now, if someone says the same thing to us and we go, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with that. I think you've misread the situation. Mm -hmm. Then our truth is, then we believe sincerely that we do know what the truth is. It happens to be that the other person was incorrect or misguided. So the bravery of looking at ourselves once others have already looked at us arms us with the knowledge that, well, someone has already seen it. Someone has already pointed my truth out to me. Mm. So if they saw it, who else might see it? So if I'm afraid of who I am, I may do better to confront it and pull off the Band-Aid and Ouch. <laughs> get to the other side and do it with skill. See, that's the thing. In my thought process, public relations, media relations, advertising, marketing, organic, earned media, bought media. It's all the same core product is being delivered across a, a host of delivery systems. So really, that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is what is the message? So I think the knowledge that the truth, even in a world like today where truth seems so malleable and undefinable, we should seize on the things that we actually believe to be true and embrace them and nurture them and not be afraid of them. And if they do represent something we don't like, then we can change them. Yeah, I love the work that you do because while we may be starting from a place of play and our brand messaging and selling the truth, you know, when I translate this a little bit for my listeners, we all are very talented. We are unique, whether you're a consultant or a C-suite leader or a food safety expert, and you know who you are, I know you're listening, you are all unique. You all have these unique perspectives, but when you try to position yourself or you go for an interview or you explain what you do, we have a hard time articulating what I would say in Hirsch's words, your truth. And we have to realize what our unique gifts are and how to message our value, what makes us unique, because there's so many, there's 8 billion people in the world. How are you going to stand out from the rest? Again, the drop-in CEO. I landed on that. I fell on my lap. It fell out of my mouth. It's, it's a kind of a funny story, but it's something that also, it may have been a truth and I didn't own it for a while. And now once I realize, oh, wow, that is different. 
And you, Hirsch, and I might play a little bit more around that at some point to see if we can expand or even change it. There's something about that truth, and it, it is at the core of who I am, how I operate, and how I make a difference in the world. And I think everybody listening, whether you're a C-suite leader or still coming up in the ranks, you need to find out what your truth is and how, when you show up, you are going to communicate an amazing message. Yeah. Now, let's just get into brass tacks here. <laughs> I want to know how you really help people here. So, I mean, what is a leader or team feeling when they say, <laughs> I got to talk to this comedian? Why do I bring a comedian into my company? And what is it that you do for them? What does that process look like to finally help them find their truth? So, for example, first of all, I relate to the struggle of not necessarily accepting your destiny or your purpose or your moniker, because for a long time, I thought I was supposed to be a comedian. I had somehow gotten distracted. And maybe it was fear. Maybe it was because I, I had a young family and I wanted to provide for them. I didn't want to take the risks of show business. Could be anything. For a long time, I blamed all these different choices. I blame myself, but you know how hard we can be on ourselves. I was hard on myself, blaming myself for not choosing my proper destiny. And I kind of accepted that as a fact that I had chosen to be in advertising and marketing and all this stuff when really I wanted to be just a performer or a writer. And I did both. And people would point out to me, you know, you are doing both. You've written movies that have been produced, you've acted and you've done stand-up. So you're really not denying, you're not like this tortured soul that never got to go on stage. I lived in California for <laughs> 18 years. It's like I lived in New York for 10 years. I was in every comedy club. So it's, it's not like I denied it, but I had this other thing. And it was when I merged those things that it was kind of shown to me, oh, this is really your unique thing that other comedians can't really do it. And other coaches or copywriters can't do it. And that's where the answer is to your question, where I think there were certain early clients that met me in the context of being a creative, at least, like a copywriter or creative director. So being a comedian wasn't that far from that. Although, you know, you don't want when you're selling yourself your services, you don't want them to think that you're doing it just to pay the bills and you really want to be on stage. You don't really care about their thing. But I think the forming of those relationships early on, like for example, Bear Paw Footwear Boot Company. So many years ago, like I don't know, 10 years ago, but somewhere around that time, I was working with footwear brands on grassroots marketing stuff, videos, earned media, a lot of earned media on the web. And then they had their agencies do their paid advertising, formal advertising. So I could do more offbeat, fun, crazy stuff. And Bearpo was struggling with trying to define themselves in their own right, not be compared to, you know, other brands and market leaders and so forth. What I noticed about that group was that they were very personable and that they had a real fan base among moms, among kids, soccer moms, things like that. And we developed, my team and I, content geared toward that audience instead of trying to become more exclusive or fancier or more of like this, we're going to be above everybody else. It was their accessibility served them really, really well. And they grew from 40 or $100 billion to several hundred billion dollars. I don't know. I know that 
the growth was there because I was watching it as we were doing these things. And there were many, many talented people behind the scenes doing this, including the owner, Tom Romeo. But it was that relationship where eventually my being a comedian or a host or a personality was what they wanted at a given moment. But then we could sit down behind the scenes in a boardroom and have a real talk about messaging, campaigns, everything that you would want to have in an executive creative director or a consultant. So my ability to wear those hats was integral. And then you become like a close confidant of your clients where they know they can trust you. Everything isn't a joke. There's a time and a place for humor, you know, which I think I learned from my dad. Was humor part of the process because ultimately you were able to serve that client? What was their truth? Again, yes, you found a demographics that you could then message towards, but like, what was their truth that through your process and how did you use humor or comedy to help draw that out and build the messaging that they wanted? Their truth was that they had really beautiful product and useful and great price points and catered to the whole family. Also, kids grow out of shoes so fast. It's like, are you going to spend 120, 130, 40, 50 on a pair of boots for an eight-year-old? You want them to have stuff that that looks good, feels good, and doesn't break the bank. But at the same time, all we did at, at first, and this became a thing that I do now when I'm working with clients with a lot of employees and big groups, and I'm not working just one-on-one with, let's say, a CEO or a founder, is I brought a, a film crew on a catalog shoot that they did. This was the first thing I did with them. They did a catalog shoot in Napa Valley, I think it was. And, you know, I didn't want to mess up their catalog shoot. But we came out and we had our own photographer and our own cameras. And we did behind the scenes interviews with the team, with the marketing VP, with the owner, with the models, with the creatives. And that was funny. And those videos became like a alternate semi-reality for just a fun magazine that we created online called Barefoot Style. And the idea was, in that case, does two things. It breaks the ice with the audience, with the consumer. It puts them more at ease. Oh, these people don't take themselves so seriously. And (laughs) the other thing it does is it creates a kind of sense that, okay, there's two sides to the brand. Now you see it more. Brands that like Wendy's or whatever, they'll have a really funny, irreverent social media presence. But then, you know, when you go into a Wendy's, they're not just clowning around with you. And I, I don't have any affiliation with Wendy's. I'm just using an example. But you go into the restaurant and you're treated like you want to be treated as a customer. But their image creates a sense of familiarity, a sense of fun, a sense of play. That's important to have. You know, what I love about that is I just kind of, I'm smiling here and thinking about maybe I should be doing some behind the scenes at the drop-in CEO. I should be interviewing my dog, Reagan, because he always makes some cameo appearances on my show. Or what does this beautiful studio that people see on my video really look like under the desk and behind the bookcase? There is an absolute mess down there because I'm so focused on 
the customer product, the perception that you see that they're going to trust me to bring great value. But behind the scenes, there's a bunch of chaos that I haven't just gotten to. I think that's really important that, yeah, we have to do our best work. We have to be organized. We have to do great presentations, be well organized for problem solving sessions. But honestly, we should let our roots show a little bit. We should let our hair down. We should allow ourselves to flub up words, which I do quite often, because honestly, that's what people connect with. And I think as leaders, when we think about our brands, and again, we don't teach this in school, that being just a little human, being a little funny, being a little playful, which I want to go into next, is really what's going to elevate you as a leader and also start building what makes you stand out as being special and different. Very well said. Deb. Very well said. I, w- I will say that I have been developing an idea for you. I can't wait. We've been talking about this. (laughs) That kind of goes a little bit toward what you were saying, because that behind the scenes thing, I hadn't thought of it as necessarily specifically behind the scenes, but it would work. One of the things that is truly appealing about you as the drop-in CEO is your manner, your composure, and the fact that you get the protocol so well and so clearly We talked about this a little bit. You kind of have what I have on the creative side and on the messaging side you have on the corporate side, which is that you have a great ear for their personality, right? Your client's personality, their challenges, you relate and they relate to you, but they don't sense this thing like, hey, there's a new sheriff dropping in and I'm, you're out (laughs) and I'm doing this thing. So from a point of view of humor or irony, you don't want to go there with that But what I was thinking is it would be funny to see what happens when you aren't composed, when you lose your composure. And so it might be something that we could do because often one of the great devices in marketing is the opposite. Yes. We're showing the opposite. Could be done like a little French film. We do it in black and white. We do it in a kind of what looks like an aged, you know, you can do so many things on video now. I used to get a lot of my ideas shot down when it was more expensive to execute. They'd be like, I don't have that thing. And I was like, we could do a documentary. We could submit it to Sundance. We could do a whole thing. We could shoot it on film. And they'd be like, oh, my God. But now these things are much more easily accomplished. But we would do this short film and you would play a version of yourself without the composure, without the organization. It's kind of behind the scenes, but it's more in an alternative universe where You are not so smooth and together and all that, but it could be that that's to an extent some what some of your clients are dealing with. They're dealing with a little disorganization. They're dealing with a little chaos and frustration, but that would be the basis of it. I think ideas need time to percolate, but they have to come from you. You see how you talked about your background behind you, literally the, you know, you talked about the mess. I need to know that stuff so that I can come up with ideas for me to just come in and get ideas out to people without knowing them and really understanding who they are, really hearing them. It's those little tiny things that you pick up in a meeting that you'd hear the CEO say, or you'd hear the person say, or you'd see how they are relating to people or something frustrating happens and you see how they react and they'll be like, oh, Sorry, I had to see that. This has been a thing that's been going on with that. And you're like, no, this is great. I need to know that. You know, (laughs) 
Yeah. Hirsch and I are going to be doing some more one-on-one offline. You just heard some spot coaching going on in the middle of the interview here. You never know where things are actually going to go here, but there is something to be said about getting to know the person deeply. Yes, I am a professional. Yes, I show up composed. That's what people want. That's what they trust. But I will tell you, you should see, you should be shooting video when I'm in the front of my mirror. I'm trying to straighten this curly hair of mine. I'm checking my email to see what's coming through. The dog's in here looking for a walk. That's really behind the scenes. And then all of a sudden, Deb shows up. It's like, ah, that calming voice. She's going to take me on a journey here so that I can gain some insights. But really to bring this here, (laughs) there's a lot there. We're going to go there. But I want to just dip a little bit into a little bit with the leadership stuff, humor. It's a scary place. What are some tips? What can we do, whether we bring in Hirsch or not, to help us with our brand or our persona or our messaging? What could somebody do right now? Practice a tip, something that could break the ice, generate some creativity. How can we leverage a bit of humanity, a bit of humor in the workplace? And what can we achieve with that? A lot of us enjoy comedy and we watch comedy. We don't really analyze it because you know, unless you're a professional, you're not going to analyze certain things. You're going to just enjoy them. But as an exercise, I recommend that people watch something that they would ordinarily watch, whether it's stand-up comedy or an animated program or something they watch with their kids. They should watch something funny and analyze what about it makes them laugh. And then think about their own day and think about their own life and think about the things that are stressful to them that are challenging, and then try to put those two elements together. Can I laugh at this? Also, another part of it is who's to blame, right? Blame is a big thing. Now, in comedy, blame is everything, right? There's some kind of conflict or some kind of incident, you know, an inciting incident, and then there's how someone reacts to it. And if the movie, if a movie, let's say, we're all about someone going through life having literally no problem with anything that happens. It would be a very exciting movie. But you have characters that resist the truth and they resist the reality and they project onto other people. And we have to take a deep breath. And in this imaginary world, we're just talking about funny things that are funny to us. Start to imagine what it's like if we took responsibility for stuff. This is something I think we all deal with. Sometimes I wonder why do we expect our kids to know all this stuff already when we have such a hard time owning up to our own fallibility? What do we expect kids to be like, yeah, you know what, father, I was wrong in that situation. That was immature of me. And, you know, we respond, well, you know, you're five years old, you'll get over it. (laughs) But we really have to play that game with ourselves a little bit. And then Going back to the honesty thing, I don't think the honesty thing for me is based on principle in the sense that I demand honesty or this kind of thing. It comes from the fact that I'm trying to get to the joke or to the resolution. And honesty is just the fastest way to get to the other side. So when thinking about ourselves, If we were doing a self-evaluation, but put in the irony there that you saw in that show that you liked or whatever it was, you'd start to be able to laugh at yourself. If you tell an underling to 
laugh at you or go ahead, make a joke at my expense. It's not going to work. They're not going to make a joke at your expense. And it might not be the right process. But if you don't take yourself so seriously, and what does it require to not take yourself seriously? Confidence, really. Loving yourself, really. The more you love yourself, the more impervious you are to haters, you know? Like, does anybody really feel like they can be in a position of power and never have any haters? I just interviewed someone about tall poppy syndrome. People will start it in ancient Greece where the tall poppies would grow and they would overshadow the small poppies. And the idea was, you know, cut the tops off and then everybody will be the same size and no one will be above anyone else. But in fact, it's the people who crave the power that are trying to cut down all the other poppies. And I think that we have a tendency as human beings to be envious. Sometimes it spurs us on to, to be better people and accomplish more. And sometimes it makes us very petty and nefarious in our in a way we deal with it. So the idea is build your confidence, look for great role models. Even if you're a great role model yourself, there probably are great role models in other areas or colleagues that you find yourself being a bit envious of, but you know, you really just want to be able to do what they're doing. Most of the time, I think we'll find that those people that we're looking at are a good model for us. We all know when we see people that we don't respect or admire, I don't think we're going to be threatened by them. I think we're going to be more threatened by people that we do admire. You know, when I think about the work that you do, helping people to sell the truth, something I shy away with because maybe my default mechanism is to be so in control, but I will tell you, and these are the behind the scenes, my husband and I are originally from New Jersey and people from New Jersey will actually kind of blow their top a little bit more and tell you exactly what they think. And we can be labeled as gruff. I try to shy away from that because I don't like conflict, but I will tell you if I don't face the truth and tell my husband exactly what I think and what really upset me in the vulgarity that I'm not going to use right now on the air, <laughs> I'll tell you, first of all, it immediately makes him laugh when I blow up at him. And then I'm saying, you know, he once asked me, how do you feel now? I said, I feel wonderful. I got that off my chest. Or sometimes when faced with something, we're tired, we're exhausted. It's funny what just happened. I had, you know, a horror story with traveling from A to B. We'll just like start laughing hysterically. Yes, it was a misfortune. It was inconvenient. But at the end of the day, I will say there's something edgy about laughter and also about blowing up that while sometimes there's almost too much emotional intelligence. We have to manage our feelings and how it's going to impact people. And I know that's really important so that everybody feels safe. However, occasionally blowing up, saying the truth, saying something funny is important to get it out there, get the truth, and maybe get to a better understanding of what you're supposed to be or how we're supposed to interact with the world. I so appreciate going a little bit with our emotions and letting things like laughter or just being real, it's important for us to move forward in what we're doing. You and I could go on and on, but I would just love to give you the stage a last few moments to bring this to a close because I want people to check out a little bit more about your podcast. Yes, Brand, the work that you do to help people message what they're supposed to in the world and maybe some of your comedy as well. I mean, I've been thoroughly enjoying that, but any last <laughs> things that you want to share? Thank you, Deb. This has been so much fun for me. In order to play, you have to have playmates. You can't just play by yourself all the time in your room. 
And even when I was little and I would put on dress up and do things in front of the mirror, the greatest joy was to be on a stage and do it. And I think that even though I come across a lot of my clients are not people who would readily get on the stage. I made a decision a while ago not to make that like I'm not trying to turn them into a comedian or, you know, I don't want to teach public speaking or I don't really want to teach any of that. I just want to share with them and grow with them. And I honestly believe that before you can brand yourself, honestly, you have to kind of find yourself. Some people have and they just don't know how to express it or what's appropriate to express. And so I would just share that with Yes Brand, and the idea, as I alluded to, was, you know, in in improv, we always say yes and, it's a rule. So if someone says something outrageous, like the Martians have landed, we don't say, no, they haven't, and try to come up with something else. We have to work with what we're given. So we say yes, and they're all wearing Prada suits and smoking cigars, because it gives the other person something to work with. So it's an exchange. It's a back and forth. And that's at the core of what I do with brands, because a brand isn't just a person, but most of the brands I work with are in the middle somewhere. They're not necessarily the market leader. They wouldn't necessarily need to work with me if they are. But They are challenger brands in many cases. They're trying to get to another level. They're trying to get either to another level of understanding or another level of revenue or another level of growth. I had you have clients that have come from other countries and wanted to break into the U.S. market and know how to, how do we translate our message? So the needs can run the gamut, but this kind of back and forth works only if there's a willingness to go back and forth. So I won't have a client who says, all right, go do that. Go do the thing that you do. And then I don't talk to them. Or I talk to people so far down the line that there's so many levels of bureaucracy that if it's not actionable, what's the point? If they can't actually take it and do it. I mean, inspiration is one thing, but you got to be able to move forward with something that is practical ultimately. (laughs) And we know that. I've heard that from people that I've gone to for counsel. You know, if you're not ready to do it, if you're not ready to go and start this new chapter, if you're not ready to go out and do all, put all the hours, it's not going to work. And that's true of anything. You know, my dad always said, if you're going to do something, do it right. That was like really something I have thought of every day. It gives you that inspiration to put that little extra effort in. And, And I think with messaging, the audience will see and respect the effort. Hirsch, you have been an amazing guest. I really appreciate that. I appreciate playing with you. And I will tell you, you have been inspiring me to think a little bit different. Again, I feel good about what I do as a leader as I show up, but you even have inspired me to maybe even evolve and take this in a slightly different direction. So you've been an amazing guest. I want people to check out your podcast, Yes Brand, also the Truth Tastes Funny podcast, and also all your work because you never know by selling the truth you may have an absolutely amazing brand or an amazing message to help your career. So Hirsch, thank you for being an amazing guest. Oh, thank you so much, Deb. I really, really enjoy speaking with you. And I'm so glad to be developing this relationship and just talking about our work. It's just, it's fun to talk about it with people who you relate to so well. 
We need more fun in the world. Thank you again, Hirsch. So I'll do this on the Yes Brand podcast with some guests is play an improv game. A lot of the time we'll be talking about their challenges in messaging or in brand building, but I don't want to go into that with the improv game. The improv game just loosens them up so that they can have a more fun conversation. And there's a game called Fortunately, Unfortunately, that's an improv game for two people. And you get a scenario from the audience and you get a, you know, what is the occupation that the two people have? And they have a conversation where every time somebody says something positive, the other person accepts it, but spins it into a problem. And so it's a problem solving game. So if you're up for it, we can do this problem solving game. And which would you like to do? Now that we're both presenting solutions, right? The unfortunately presents a solution to not do it. And the fortunately presents a solution to do it. So it, Really, they are the same, but is there one or the other that you would like to try? I am going to trust you on this. I think right now is I would like to follow along. So I'd love you to tee up this exercise and let me try to play along with it. Okay. So I'm going to say the fortunately part, and we're going to say that here, you give me as an audience member, let's say you were, I would say, give us a location, give us a place that these two people are finding themselves. Downtown Cincinnati, outside the ballpark. Okay, outside the ballpark in Cincinnati. And what are our professions? What do we do? I'm a bartender at the venue across the way from the ballpark. And you're the ticket agent. And you work at the ballpark at one of the- I work at the ballpark. Okay. So I work at the ballpark. You're a bartender. We're locals. Uh Basically, we're in downtown Cincinnati, outside the ballpark. And I'm going to start addressing you. I say, you know what? Fortunately, Deb, there are so many people coming out of this ball game today that I think you're going to do a bang up job at the pub. I think you're going to just have a full house. Coach. Now you have to say, unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, it's going to be good for business. But do you know how late I'm going to have to work cleaning up after everybody? And I'll tell you, they're not as good as the tips. As you would think after the ball game and coming to the bar. Right. So you would say now if you'd consolidated that, right, and you got to the point where you're starting to really get the hang of the game, you would say, unfortunately, they're lousy tippers. Okay. Got it. You know, that would be enough so that it's always we're keeping it pretty tight. Then I would say, but fortunately, Big Jim O'Hara is going to be coming by later. I just took his ticket and he's one of the biggest mobsters in Cincinnati. Unfortunately, he's also a bad tipper. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see how it goes. So this is an example of a game that we play, the improvisers play, but sometimes it's good to just get your mind in the place of imagination and unreality. Oh, this could be a great icebreaker or something for a corporate event. Because sometimes you go to these corporate things and they're so serious and I'm going to be sitting in a conference room. Unfortunately, I'm going to be sitting in a conference room trying to develop the future of the company. Perhaps a little game playing might be able to make this less like you want to shoot yourself. So anyway. (laughs) Also remember that it's unexpected. So it's expected for me to be a 
a comedian because it's been established that I'm a comedian, but it's not expected for you to go off script. So, but you see the joy you're kind of having now is really the goal. That kind of joy about just going off the script, your willingness to make fun of yourself is good, but it isn't so much that I would make fun of you. It's that you would make fun of you and you're making fun of you simply by putting yourself on the spot. That's you're making fun of yourself. You're like, I may, I may look like an idiot because I can't take this back, right? I said this silly thing. I didn't come up with something funny. And so, Hirsch, this may be the beginning while the drop-in CEO brand is just fine. Unfortunately, it might have to evolve and you get to see the other side of Deb Coviello. <laughs> That's right. More to come. Thank you so much for playing with me. That's right. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.